Welcome to Celebration Church Online. We are so glad that you've joined us. We want you to share this broadcast with as many people as you can. We believe that it will bless and encourage us all in this season. Remember to continue reaching out to your loved ones. Stay connected with each other, especially with your cell family. The Bible gives us a pattern to look out for one another. Let's speak His Word and His strength will carry us through. Continue checking our social media platforms for updates on Facebook and WhatsApp. We encourage you to share this content with all your friends and family. So it's great to be back today and we have such good response coming from all over the world. And I want you to be encouraged and know that the kingdom of God is advancing in power. Most importantly, Jesus is building his church. We're talking about his church. And uh, in these latter days, you have to understand that uh, there are going to be all kinds of eruptions in the church. In fact, there's a pressing on one side for a one world church, a one world government, a one world currency. We've got to be aware of what's going on. We are seeing culture creep into the church, culture trying to change the church. Uh, There's even doctrinal issues that say, hey, listen, the only thing that matters is Jesus and love and all roads lead to heaven. That's not true. The truth is that Jesus said he would build his church. There's only really one gospel by which a man can be saved, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so more important than ever, we have to take a hard look at what is the church? How did Jesus build the church? And what's going on in our society? Here in Africa, we have struggled in so many ways, but we've had a revival. God has brought blessing to the continent of Africa. And I just want you to understand that as Africa adheres to the gospels, we turn to the word of God, we can actually become the light for the rest of the churches around the world. And I think that's our calling right now. You know, we read uh, a number of things that have happened around the world uh, in the church. Churches are fighting each other. They're dividing because of the encroachment of uh, false doctrine, the encroachment of worldliness, the encroachment of the... uh, kind of the cultures of our society creeping into the church, whether it be New Age doctrine or Gnosticism or Judaism or even some of the uh, more popular uh, ideas today. In fact, the Anglican Church, there's two two Anglican parishes and dioceses in in, in Canada, Niagara, and they have been uh, in court recently to sort out the, the messy business of who ultimately owns church property. The two Niagara churches, along with eight more across the country of Canada, uh, have recently voted to leave the Anglican Church of Canada. And they put themselves under the authority of a conservative South American bishop. Now, that's pretty amazing. Uh, The dissident churches, these churches that are dissenting, believe that the Canadian church is drifting too far toward liberalism. And they're, in particular, very upset over the issue of same-sex blessings. For the Anglican Church of Canada, the issue has been the denomination relating to culture, is what they say. This was written up, this this article was written in the uh, National Post, and it was published in 2008. This has been a great schism in the Anglican church. It's not just the Anglicans, it's many of our churches that are facing some of these same schisms, whether it be over 
gender, uh, whether it be over any of these isms or topics that we're speaking about. So uh, when Jesus built his church, when he took his disciples, you have to understand that he took his disciples into Gentile territory. He took them to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And in this region, it's about 120 miles away from Jerusalem, uh, in the northern part of Palestine. Uh, it was a, an area that really identified with the religions of that era, the religions of that day. Now you have to understand, there was very little monotheistic religion back then. There was a lot of paganism. There was a, when Jesus walked the earth, there were many expressions of religion. In fact, this place was a center, and if, if you go with us to Israel, you'll find out it's a center for Baal worship. It was a center of the Greek god Pan. In fact, that was where the main shrine for Pan was. And there was a, uh, also a temple that had been built called, but that Herod the Great had built in honor of Augustus Caesar. So, by the way, the Roman Empire was a worship of the Caesar. So there was a worship involved, and this temple was amazing. It was magnificent. And so it was in the midst of this pagan superstition that Peter is confronted and they're standing in front of these temples of these gods. And Jesus asked the question, whom do men say that I am? I am? And they answer. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And it's where Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, you have to understand, this was probably within sight of Caesar's temple. And then Jesus announced something that uh, I think it's a surprise. He says, I will not establish my kingdom yet but that I would build my church I will build my church now when you think of uh, and, 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 you, and you know the, the phrase we'll get into it we're going to teach from that today I will build my church in the gates of hell now it's amazing because the gates of hell are right there at that temple of Pan they used to do sacrifices there and they would throw a carcass into the uh, a, a, a big crevice and if the carcass was swept away, it meant that the God had received it, Pan had received it. If it came back, it was meant there was going to be drought or there was going to be some kind of punishment. These were fertility gods. And uh, we get the word panic from that. They, they went to Pan and they did these sacrifices. It, it was a form of worship. And, and, and that crevice in the ground was called the gates of hell or the gates of Hades. And so Jesus says, and the gates of hell. And I think he was speaking not only in terms of the uh, space in the place there which was very epic but also in terms of the dominion of our arch enemy the devil here's the question I have for you when you think of your role in the kingdom of God how do you think how do you think you fit do you see yourself as part of something uh, or do you have a private spirituality do you think that you have a role in building a ministry are you a participant or are you a spectator? You see, to, to answer these questions determine what you see as the role of Christ and your interaction with him. There are fundamentally, these things are very fundamental. They're fundamentally important in determining what you do and what you expect. So when we pick up the story here in the book of Matthew, Matthew, the 16th chapter, the 18th through 20th verse, we see uh, some, some very interesting things here. And I'd like to just read 
uh, a little bit because Jesus points to seven features that are characteristics of the church that he builds. He speaks to its foundation. He speaks to its certainty, its intimacy, its invincibility, its identity and continuity, its authority, and its spirituality. So those are seven things I want to look at this evening, and I want to talk to you about them and see if we can't learn something about this. Let's first of all talk about the foundation. In Matthew, here we see in Matthew 16, verse 18, and the first part of that says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, although entire religions have been built around this verse, I'm going to focus on the words that Jesus used. Peter is from the word Petrus. It's a masculine form of the Greek word for a small stone. Whereas rock is from the word Petra, and it's a different form of the same basic word, but it's referring to a mountain. Sometimes we get this confused. We think that God's thinking he's going to build the church on Peter. Perhaps the most popular interpretation is therefore that Jesus was comparing Peter to a small stone and to the great mountain, the rock on which Jesus would build his church. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. You see, you have to understand that these Jewish men that are with Jesus understood and they were steeped in Old Testament scripture. They recognized that... uh, The rock was the symbol of God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, Deuteronomy says. The Lord is my rock. He's my fortress, the psalm says, Psalm 18. He says, who is God save for the Lord? Who is our rock save for our God? Psalm uh, 18. So these men understood. They had an idea of who the rock was. They had an idea that it was the Messiah, that it was God. God is the rock of their salvation. Ephesians 2, 19 through 21 He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So how then does this relate to Peter? You see, in all four gospel accounts, Peter is clearly the leading apostle, and he remains through throughout Acts chapter 10. Peter always is taking the lead. He was, the most, uh, he was most often the 12's spokesperson uh, during Jesus' earthly ministry, and he was the chief preacher, leader, and he led in working of miracles, and uh, uh, especially in the early church years. I mean, it was Peter who had the signs and wonders. Peter and John who raised up the man at the gate beautiful. It was Peter whose shadow fell on people. Peter was the central figure of the apostolic team. Uh, in fact, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 2, it says, Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. And then... Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. So you might say that he was the first among equals. There were 12 apostles, but he was the first among equals. So it therefore seems that in the present passage that we're speaking about, that Jesus addressed Peter as a representative of the 12. In light of the two different forms of the Greek rock, the word that's used for rock, it would 
be explained by the masculine Petrus being used for Peter as an individual, as a man, and Petra being used of him as a representation of the larger group. Again, look at, look at Acts chapter 2. You'll see something here again in Acts chapter 2, and I think it's important that we look here. See, it was not on the apostles themselves, much less on Peter as an individual, that uh, Christ built his church. But Christ built his church on himself and on, on the word of God, that word that had been made flesh and that had dwelt amongst us and that has now manifested itself in the form of the Son, but would remain in the form of the words that he has deposited in the hearts of these men. Uh, he used the apostles. Jesus used the apostles as his uniquely appointed, endowed, and inspired teachers of the gospel. However, the early church did not give homage to the apostles as persons, or they didn't give reverence to their office or their titles, but to their doctrine. So here in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 41 and 42, listen to what it says. And I think this is important for us as leaders. You must understand that so often we put emphasis on title, prophet, apostle, you know, whatever we think we are. But the church didn't put that title and, and make title so important. In Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 42, it says, So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves not to the apostles, but to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now jump over to Acts chapter 3. When the Jews outside the temple were astonished at the healing of the crippled man, uh, Peter quickly warned them not to credit them with the miracle. Listen, listen to how Peter responded when they wanted to bow down. and they, they said, these are the gods that have come amongst us. And here's what Peter said. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power, our own piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and you denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Boy, let me tell you something. They put themselves in the right place. They said, it's not us, it's him. It's not my ministry, it's his ministry. It's not I'm the healer, it's he's the healer. And see, I tell you, as ministers, as leaders, and as the church, we need to figure out whose we are and whom we serve. And when we do that, we're going to find out that there's something very, very, very powerful. You see, Jesus had given Simon a new name, the name Peter which means stone. In, in, in the uh, uh, Aramaic, it was Cephas, which also means a stone. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, every one of us who believes in Jesus and confesses him as the Son of God and our Savior is now made to be a living stone. Don't you know that you are lively stones being joined together to form the temple of God? God has made us into lively stones. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a chief cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will 
not be put to shame. Wow. See, in this passage, we have uh, the elements of the rock. The rock, first and foremost, is Christ. The cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation of faith. This is the message of Peter, who Jesus is addressing. Now, I'll tell you what. This is a play on words using his name. Petrus Petra. Peter, you're a rock. You're a small stone. But, but see, he's also speaking to the apostles in general. And speaking of all of us who would one day profess truth, his truth. But this is a cornerstone. The cornerstone, the foundation, and the spiritual house that is being built. It has nothing to do with human beings. This is Jesus. Upon him, upon this revelation would he build his church. Upon the word of God. In 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, the 11th verse, it says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ. There can be no other foundation laid except Christ. The truth is that the Lord builds the church on the truth of himself. And because his people are inseparable from him, they're inseparable from his truth. And because... The apostles were endowed with this truth in a very unique way by their preaching of that truth. They also, too, became part of the foundation of the church, his church, in a very unique way. The early apostles preached and they carried the message of Christ until the canon of the scripture that you and I have today, the Bible, was secured and the, do and the doctrine of Christ that we benefit now by a more sure word of prophecy. The, something that isn't shakable. But these men, inspired of the Holy Spirit, were used by God to lay as apostles and prophets the foundations on the foundation of Christ and Christ alone. What's been handed down to you and I is the Holy Bible. Thank God for the Word of God. Everything else that happens must now be checked by the Word of God. In fact, I often like to say it this way, that the Bible, the Word of God, is God's tuning fork. No matter what's happening out there, if it doesn't line up with the sound of this Word, if it doesn't tune with this, it's contrary to this, therefore it must be rejected. Whether it be a prophet, an angel, a vision, a dream, another movement, that's not what we are listening to. We listen and we have a sure word of prophecy. And Jesus said, I will build my church on this, on the revealed word of God, on myself, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The rock imagery, this imagery of the rock implies both stability and endurance. Let me give you an example. Uh, one of the great architects of our world is a guy named Frank Lloyd Wright. And uh, he was given a challenge to build the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. Now, Tokyo is an island, and uh, it was one of the most earthquake-prone cities in the whole world. And Wright's investigation showed that a solid foundation could be floated on a 60-foot layer of soft mud underlying the hotel, which would provide as a shock-absorbing but solid support for this immense building that he was about to build. Shortly after the hotel was completed, it withstood the worst earthquake in a 52-year period and survived. Lesser buildings fell to their ruin around it. Let me tell you something. The church that Christ builds has a supernatural foundation. This world is going to shake, I can tell you. 
But we are on the bedrock of his word. He says, if you're building on shifting sand, when this world shakes, and it's shaking, when the storm comes, and it's coming, you will not stand. But if we build on the firm foundation of the word of God, we cannot fail. So God gave us Christ as the cornerstone, his word, the word made flesh that dwelt amongst us, and his word that is still amongst us. His word and he are one, and we have that as our supernatural and firm foundation. Secondly, is the certainty of the church. The church is certain. Matthew, again, 16. Let's just look at it. Matthew verse 16, or uh, Matthew uh, chapter 16, verse 18. Uh, the, the second half of this verse says, and I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The idea is that he would continue to build his church just as he always had done. And this is the progressive future tense of the Greek word. So you have to understand, it should really read that Christ is saying, I shall continue to build my church. There's a continuity to what God does. It's not that I will build my church like it's a one-time event. No, I will build and I'll continue to build my church. And that's an important thing that we have to understand because that gives us hope in our generation. See, God himself has always been the builder of his church. Jesus was not emphasizing the time of his building, but it's certainty. It's not that it's going to be done today or tomorrow. No, he says it will be done with certainty. I will and I will continue to build my church. No matter how liberal, no matter how fanatical, no matter how ritualistic, no matter how apathetic or apostate the outward adherence of the church may be, and no matter how decadent the rest of the world may become, Christ will build his church. Therefore, no matter how oppressive and hopeless their outward circumstances may appear from a human perspective, God's people belong to a cause that cannot fail. We will not fail. Christ declared that he alone builds the church and no matter how well-intentioned someone may be, anyone else who attempts to build his church is competing with him, not serving him. We can't build the church. He builds his church. By human reason, by human persuasiveness and diligence, it is impossible. Well, it's possible to win converts to an organization or a cause, a personality, or to many other things. But it is totally impossible to win someone to Christ, to convert the spiritual, to to win a convert to the spiritual church, church of Jesus Christ apart from God's sovereign own word and spirit. Let me tell you something. Human effort can produce only human results. God alone can produce divine results. We need divine results these days. When someone studies and is obedient to the word, and when an individual walks in the spirit and produces the fruit of the spirit, A believer can be sure that he is where Christ is building his church. It is not faithful believers who builds Christ's church, but Christ who builds his church through faithful believers. We have to get the order right. It's not because of me. It's because of 
him working in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. It's Christ who's working in us that's important. You see, wherever his people are committed to his kingdom and his righteousness, the Lord builds his church. If believers in one place become cold or they become disobedient, Christ doesn't stop building. He just simply starts his work somewhere else. Look, if you look at book, again at the book of Acts, the second chapter here, uh, it's, it's amazing what we read here. Uh, so turn to the book of, of Acts chapter 2. Uh, and, and while we're there, you know, John, John 6, 37 says this, and uh, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You see, people come to Christ because they're given to him by God the Father. Did you know God's involved in all this? At Pentecost, Peter declared that from among both Jews and Gentiles, Christ builds into his church. Listen to it. Acts chapter two, verse 39. You saw this. Listen to what it says. It says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It was not the apostles, but the Lord himself who grew the church. Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And listen to this. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Who added? The Lord. Was it their great evangelistic program? Was it their great children's program? Was it their relevance to the culture? Was it their style of dress? Was it the lights on, the lights off? No, it was none of those things. It was the Lord. And if God shows up on the scene, if the Lord shows up, there's a certainty to his church. There's something we can depend on, that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Flip over to, 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 to chapter 13. Uh, there's a, a, a balance to this, and I, I don't want to get on one side alone. It, it's not God alone, nor is it us alone. The Bible says that we're co-laborers with God, co-laborers with Christ in bringing people to the certainty of the kingdom and the certainty of salvation. And this is done through the church, through the church that Jesus is building. You see, when the Gentiles of Pisidon Antioch heard the preaching of Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13. Listen to what it says. It says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. What spread? The word of the Lord. Who is the word? Jesus. Jesus became the word and was made flesh. Jesus is that word. He and the word are one. So we build the church. Jesus builds the church with certainty on his word. I read a poem, and I'm going to read a poem to you. It's called, Are You a Builder or a Wrecker? A Builder or a Wrecker? As I watched them tear a building down, a gang of men in a busy town, with a ho-heave-ho and a lusty yell, they swung a beam and the side wall fell. I asked the foreman, are these men skilled and the men you'd hire if you wanted to build? He gave a laugh and said, no indeed, just common labor, that's all I need. I can easily wreck in a day or two. What builders have taken years to do, 
And I thought to myself as I went away, which of these roles have I tried to play? Am I a builder who works with care, measuring life by rule and square? Am I shaping my work to a well-made plan, patiently doing the best I can? Or am I a wrecker who walks to town content with labor of tearing down? Oh Lord, let my life, my labors be that which will build for eternity. Wow, I thought that was pretty neat, don't you? So when I think of what we're talking about, the church that Christ builds has firm and solid foundation, supernatural foundation, and it's built with certainty. But it's also built with intimacy. Intimacy, we see that in chapter 16 of Matthew, the uh, the 18th verse here. And it says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus alludes to the intimacy of the fellowship of believers. He says, it's my church. My church. Boy, that's pretty intimate. It's not anybody's church but his. As architect, as builder, as owner, and Lord of his church, Jesus Christ assures his followers that they are his personal possession and eternally have his divine love and care. That is why he gives the responsibility to the elders of the church to do something. In fact, in fact, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church which he obtained with his own blood. It's his church. He obtained it. He paid everything for it. He says, I'm asking you to take careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock of which the Lord has made you overseers. See, believers, we are one with him in a marvelous and holy intimacy. 1 Corinthians 6, 17, you all know it. It says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. Or one, it doesn't say in spirit, it says one spirit with him. If we're joined to the Lord, we become one spirit with him. Again, a guy named Carl S. Dudley wrote this. He called it the small church. He says, in a big world, the small church has remained intimate. In a fast world, the small church has been steady. In an expensive world, the small church has remained plain. In a complex world, the small church has remained simple. In a rational world, the small church has kept feelings. In a mobile world, the small church has been an anchor. In an anonymous world, the small church calls us by name. Jesus built a church. It's built intimately. That's why even in our own church, those who thrive are those who have intimate relationships. They found themselves in cell groups. They found themselves fellowshipping. They found themselves intimate with other believers and with Christ himself. It's very, very important. That's why Christ is not ashamed to call believers brothers and sisters in him. Hebrews 2.11 says, For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren or brothers. Brothers and sisters. You know, when people attack God's people, they're attacking God himself. When Jesus confronted Paul, then known as Saul on the Damascus Road. 
We see him in Acts chapter 9 or verse 4. It says, and he falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul reiterates the story again in uh, chapter 8 and, verse, and chapter 9. He tells how he was smitten by God and how God spoke to him and confronted him about his uh, zeal, yes, but his antagonism towards what God was building, his church. And uh, God has always identified himself with his people. And he has jealously guarded them. He guards you and I as his own. In fact, he several times referred to his chosen people, Israel, as the apple or the pupil of his eye. Once through the prophet Zechariah, he declared to everyone, he said, who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You see, the front part of the eye, the, the, the cornea, is the most sensitive, exposed part of the human body. And God was therefore saying that to harm Israel was to figure to the poke a finger in God's own eye. See, to harm God's people is to harm God himself. And to cause them pain is to cause him pain. Isn't that good to know that he is intimate with you? He's intimately involved in your pain, your sorrow. He knows what you feel. He sees. You see, the church that Christ builds has a supernatural foundation. It has certainty. It has intimacy. But it also has identity and continuity. We read again in Matthew, the 16th chapter, and he says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, Jesus emphasized the identity and the continuity of his people. They are his church. His people are his church. There are places in scripture that discuss the nature of the called out people. Acts chapter 7 is one of them. In fact, throughout, throughout all of Acts. But the, these called out people in the Old Covenant, uh, of, of God in the Old Covenant, and uh, we, we know who they are. They're God's chosen. But then the first occurrence of this idea in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, occurs uh, with a Greek word called ecclesia, the ecclesia, from which we get our English word ecclesiastical. And it refers to things that pertain to the church. But that's not really what it means. It really means to those things that, per, that, re, that, that pertain to government. We've made it church, but God says it's governmental. The ecclesia are the called out ones and they have the power to govern. Uh, this word is used 114 times in the New Testament. It literally means to uh, be called out into an assembly. And uh, in 90 of these references, of the 114 times, uh, it re references a local church, a local assembly. That's pretty powerful. That God says, hey, out of this local assembly, these called out ones, I have governmental authority. I give them authority. I give them power. It's in this first use of ecclesia that it seems likely Jesus had the whole church in mind. He was not just building a local assembly, but he was trying to build the universal church. He was trying to give a picture that, hey, he would be the Lord over every church. And uh, that church is anyone who makes the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, the same confession that Peter had made by faith. You see, in a theological sense, Scripture distinguishes between the church militant that's here on earth and the church triumphant that's in heaven. Yet each are a part of one another. And 
we're all part of the same body of Christ. In describing the inhabitants of heaven, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 23. And he says, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. He, he, he's describing something here. You see, in the church, Jesus would unite believing Jews and Gentiles and form a new temple, a new body, without a wall of separation between male and female, between Jew and Greek, between bond and free. He, he built his church. And in his church, there are nat these natural distinctions are no longer important. Galatians 3.28 tells us that, hey, there is no difference between anyone in Christ. Jesus would be the builder of his church and he would be the head of his church. Jesus is the head. It was the plan of God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, he said this in verse 22. He said, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church. To the church. The church that Christ builds has a supernatural foundation. It has certainty. It has intimacy. And it has identity and continuity. But let me tell you what else. It's also invincible. It's in, it has invincibility. We can see this here again in Matthew. In Matthew, the latter part of, the, uh, of, of, six, of verse 18 of, of Matthew 16, it says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, let me tell you something. Jesus spoke of the invincibility of the church, which the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against. It will not overpower it. The gates of hell or the gates of Hades have often been interpreted as representing the evil forces of Satan attacking the church of Jesus Christ. But we understand this. <laughs> uh, although we do have an enemy and he does attack, gates don't attack. Gates aren't attacking us, okay? Hades is simply the realm of the dead. It holds the spirits of unsaved and dead, of the unsaved dead, and it releases them at the resurrection. Those gates will be open at the resurrection. All the people that are held there, that are righteous, will be resurrected. Even the unrighteous, but unto eternal judgment. But according to Jesus, Hades is down somewhere. And it is a prison to which Jesus holds the keys. As a figure of speech, though, it is a metonym which represents Satan and his legions. Gates represent, in the Bible, authority. They represent power. The city gate was to the Jew what city hall is to you and I, to people in the Western world. Important business was transacted in the gates of the city. And you can see that throughout the whole Bible. Uh, that's where Ruth was decided that she could go to Boaz at the gate of the city with the elders in the city. There's, there's lots of stories that we can look at. The gates of hell then, or the gates of Hades, would symbolize the organized power of death and the organized power of Satan. By his death, Jesus' death, and by his resurrection, Jesus Christ would conquer death, the grave, so that death would not be able to hold any of his people. That is the message of the gospel. Christ would storm the gates and deliver the captives. When the terms gates and hell and hades are properly understood, it becomes clear that Jesus was declaring that death has no power to hold God's redeemed people captive. Amen. Its gates are not strong enough to prevail against or 
overpower and keep imprisoned the church of God? In fact, the word used there is katsuo. It means to have mastery over. I did a whole series on self-mastery. Well, God wants us to have self-mastery. He wants us to be led of the Spirit, born of the Spirit, filled of the Spirit, led by God, hidden in Christ. Not be mastered over, not be, uh, have mastery by uh, an overpowering or an overlord. That's why we have to break the power of sin and break the power of the enemy off our life. We do that through Christ who conquered sin, who conquered death on our behalf. Romans 8 chapter 2 says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus and from the law of sin and death. Christ's ultimate victory over Satan's power to uh, his power of death is so certain that the writer of Hebrews says it this way. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. For this purpose was the Son of God manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. See, it's true. This is the truth. It, 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 it's a truth about Paul, about which Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And he declared to these Corinthian believers who were wavering in their faith. They were wavering in, they actually were wavering in their belief in the resurrection. People had crept in and had, like, like, very much like in Africa today, we have people that believe in deliverance, we have people that believe in prophecy, we have people, but we're losing a faith in the, wait a minute, the resurrection power of what Jesus can do. Some of these people are doctrinally bereft. And here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, uh, verses 54 through 57, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. You know, I think there's an old poem that uh, I've heard said, oh, I, I don't know when the last time I heard it, but it was uh, called, In the Midst of the Battle, the Christian Soldier Knows. And it goes this way. It says, crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the church of Jesus Christ constant will remain. Gates of hell can never against that church prevail. We have Christ's own promise. And that cannot fail. Cannot fail. God's promise will not fail. The church that Christ builds has a supernatural foundation. The church that Jesus is building is certain. It's full of intimacy, identity, and continuity. Invincibility. It's invincible. No gate of hell can prevail against it. But it also has authority. Authority. Everybody likes to talk about authority. But I love what God says about authority. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, Matthew 16, 19 says. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The you in this passage is singular. Jesus was directing this, first of all, to Peter. The implications are for the rest of the apostles and for all believers in general. 
but they at this time were implicated primarily for Peter. What then was Jesus? What was he referring to in regard to uh, having keys? Well, a key is a badge of authority. Uh, you can see that in Isaiah twenty-two fifteen, and you can see it in Luke eleven uh, fifty-two. Uh, Jesus talks about keys. He talks about having the keys of authority and and the the authority of the keys of the kingdom of David, the king of the kingdom of God. Okay, but no one on earth carries keys to heaven. And, and I know we get these pictures of Peter at the pearly gates with the key to heaven. Well, let me tell you something. All those jokes about St. Peter and standing at the gate, they stem from a misunderstanding. And they're both unbiblical and often in bad taste. <laughs> you know. But uh, we use the keys to open doors. Peter was given the privilege of opening the door of faith to the Gentiles and to the Jews on Pentecost. Uh, Peter to the Jews on Pentecost. It was Paul who got to open the door to the Gentiles. Peter got to go to the Samaritans. And later on, he did go to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Peter, remarkably, was the one who fulfilled in his being, and he was the first to admit that the Jews and Gentiles, to admit Jews and Gentiles into the church. He said they're, they're, they're equal. He says they're the same in Christ. And thus, using the power of the keys, he opened the door of salvation to both Jew and Gentile. The other apostles shared this authority. We see that in Matthew 18, 18. And Paul had the privilege of opening the door of faith to the Gentiles outside of Israel. Not to the house of Israel, but to outside of the Israel. He went to all of Europe and all of Asia and eventually preached the gospel. The whole world was shaken, the Bible says, by his preaching. By preaching the exclusive nature of faith, Peter was opening the door to someone and closing them to others. How many of you know that our gospel is either received or rejected? It's the smell, the sweet smell and a sweet savor to those that are being saved, but it's a stench to those who are perishing. So this privilege was related to the objective realities of faith that is based on truth. That is why this passage in Matthew 16 is in the neuter. He says, whatever is bound or loosed, it doesn't say whoever is bound or loose. We don't have the power to bind people. We have the power to bind things. In other words, this is referring to the presentation of truths and judgments that will be made as to actions that are permitted and those that are forbidden based on truth of the word of God. This also suits the idea of keys, which simply refers to authority. They open and close things. Said another way, Whatsoever you forbid on earth must be what is already forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth is what must already be, have been permitted in heaven. See, God doesn't allow us to take the reins of that. We, we simply reflect what is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. It's, uh, we are a representative of heaven. We're a representative of the kingdom. And so when we do that, we have to understand what God is trying to accomplish through us and and to us the church does not tell heaven what to do but obeys on earth what heaven commands the church to do I'll say it again thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it already is in heaven you see the Lord was still addressing Peter as representative of the twelve telling him that whatever you bind that is Whatever you forbid shall be bound or forbidden 
in heaven. And whatever you loose, that is permit on earth, shall be loosed or permitted in heaven. He told Peter and the 12, and by extension, all other believers, that we have an outstanding, an outstanding and, 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 and very grave authority to declare what is divinely forbidden or permitted on earth. You see, the church's authority is not to determine these things, but to declare the judgment of heaven based on the principles of the word of God. This is most clearly seen based on the grammatical construction of these scriptures. The phrases in Greek are in what is called the paraphrasatic, future perfect passive construction. That's a big word. Therefore, they should be translated this way. We have been bound already, will uh, we'll have been bound already, and will have been loosed already in heaven. In other words, Peter's and our pronouncement of binding and loosen, loosing isn't dependent upon us, but upon what heaven has already willed, rather than earth giving direction to heaven. And boy, I'll tell you, I, I think this is so important, especially in these days right now. It seems to me that we are demanding things of God that maybe we should be thanking him for in advance. He's already purchased these things. Instead of telling him what he's doing, maybe uh, we should be listening to what he wants to do and declaring what he's already done through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. See, shortly after Jesus' resurrection, he told his disciples this in John 20, verse 23. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. But, but don't we know that only God can forgive sins? Only God has the power to forgive sins. But others can declare forgiveness based on God's word. If there is evidence of repentance, then we, you and I as preachers, you and I as pastors, you and I as believers, based on the God's promise, based on God's scripture, can declare sin to be forgiven. We can look at it and say, yes, God says if a man repents, his sins be forgiven. We can declare what heaven says and we can forgive men their sins. Not because we have the power to, but because God has already paid the price for that. The authority of the church lies in the fact that it has heaven's word on everything. Listen to what it says in the book of Acts. Or excuse me, in the book of 2 Peter 1.3. I've, I've taught this so many times. It says, his divine power has granted you and I, granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. There's a, uh, an old story. It's been told many ways. It was told of three very powerful men of God. And uh, there's probably nobody you would even know today. But they were out to find the best that this life had to offer and willing to try anything, and they were now on their way to New York City, and they were going to the Ambassador Hotel. This is back at the turn of the century. And they had a 29-floor building that they went to. Upon entering the hotel, hotel, they were greeted by the bellhop, and uh, he took their bags and led them to the main desk. And when they got to the desk, they asked the clerk, the clerk asked them, well, what kind of room do you want? And uh, they replied, well, give us the best you have. 
And the clerk looked at the register and he told the men, well, the only one of this type left is on the top floor, the 29th floor. The key was handed over to them and the bellhop led them to the elevator. And after they had arranged their belongings all in proper order and they got things settled, the three men put on their suits, their tweed jackets, and they were off to see New York City's high spots. Hours went by and they began to, they got a little bit tired. They'd been traveling and they decided to go back to the hotel. And at the lobby desk, they were told that the elevator had developed some complications and was not able to take them up the stairs. Uh, so they had to climb the stairs. Within the first few flights, it went pretty quickly and easily. And then as they were kind of akin to do, they were joking and laughing and having a little bit of fun. And, uh, but it, each flight seemed to get a little bit longer as they climbed these stairs. But the men kept pressing on. Five, six, seven, eight floors were passed. And eventually, it meant that they were one flight closer to their destination. The men, already kind of tired and weary from a hard night, began to slow down. And the floors dragged by slower each time. 11th floor, 12th floor, 13th floor. Almost halfway there, one of the men just said, man, this is getting to be really hard. Another one just grunted, and they, but they pushed on, 17, 18, 19. Well, they wondered if they would ever reach the top. Finally, on the 20th floor, one of the guys sat down, and he just couldn't go on any further. But after resting for about 10 minutes, he was persuaded by the others to get up and try it. After all, there's only nine floors left to the top. Then there'd be those nice soft mattresses and some fried chicken and all the things that they had hoped for. So they went on. Each flight seemed like a mile. And it seemed as if it took an eternity to get to the next flight. All three men were now on their knees, crawling step by step in hopes of reaching the 29th floor. Sam was the first to come to the door. So he reached down into his pocket for the key. Hmm. To Sam's amazement, the key wasn't there. He asked John if he had it, but John said, oh no, Lewis must have it. <laughs> they both looked at Lewis, but all he had were several empty pockets. Here they were on the 29th floor just inches from what they had considered heaven and yet they could not get in. They had forgotten to get the key. Can I tell you something? God has given us the key to unlock heaven for many, many people. Amen. See, the church that Jesus Christ is building, and I'm going to close with this, not only does it have a supernatural foundation, not only does it have certainty, and intimacy, and identity, and continuity. It also has invincibility, authority, and spirituality. The church is spiritual. Matthew 16, 20, Jesus turned to those disciples. After all this, he says, and he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Why? See, Jesus reminds the disciples that his church is a spiritual reality. And he is strictly, and he, and he, and he strictly charged and warned them 
that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Why? Because it's a messianic secret. He didn't want, he didn't want them to get the wrong opinion. See, most of the Jews, including the disciples, expected the Messiah to come as a conquering king, a military conquest, a military leader, a political leader that was going to set them free from Rome. That's how they viewed it. They, they were following him for the wrong reason. They didn't know it was spiritual. They thought it was, yes, you're going to set us free. You're going to build your kingdom now. But that's not what he said. They didn't know that he came to set them free from sin, to be their savior. The people's expectations were so warped and selfishly misguided that to tell them that Christ was the, that Jesus was the Christ would to be casting their pearls before swine. Now that we live with a resurrected savior that is the foundation of our faith, promises to build his church and he guarantees the success of that endeavor he has given us this charge you all know it in Matthew the 28th chapter the 18th verse through the 20th verse he says and Jesus came to them and he said all authority has been given to me on earth in heaven and on earth therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let me tell you something. We do some very, very powerful and very, very spiritual things that God wants us to do. We are a very powerful church, not the least of which is to make disciples of nations and to baptize people. There's something spiritual that happens when men identify with Christ. There's something very spiritual that happens when nations identify with Christ. There's something very special when the church itself takes its role. It's powerful, it's mighty, it's spiritual, builds on the right foundation. Tonight I want to encourage you, it's his church. Let's study his church. Let's be a part of his church and let's let him have preeminence. Let him have the chief seat let us all find ourselves hidden in him tonight if you've been watching and God's speaking to you I, I, I believe God is trying to build his church so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it your part in this is so important we need you we need God needs you he needs you to take your role your place we cannot be complete until we all come into the maturity of Christ I, I, I really believe that God is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God you and I get to be get to see that happen in our lifetime. If you're watching and somehow it's been uh, convicting to you or you're struggling in your way, I mean, a lot of people have been locked down and they're really struggling with how to get out of their box, how to make the next steps. Well, there's a, there's a telephone number right there on the screen. Don't be afraid to pick up the phone and get some help. Pray with somebody, talk to somebody. The person on the other end of that line may not be able to help you themselves, but they can direct you to a pastor. They can direct you to somebody who can help counsel you. They can direct you to a cell group. They can direct you to a place where you can begin to have fellowship and be part of the, the church. We can talk to you about how we're going to be opening our services up and how you can participate and get involved. There's, there's lots of things that you can ask. and some, some of you just need a friend. Some of you need some intimacy. Others of you 
know that God's calling you to get back involved in his church. So I want to encourage you, make a step. Make a step of faith. Go in the right direction. And for those of you that have never received Jesus, never given your life to Christ, boy, let me tell you something. You can be introduced to him. Have an intimate relationship with him. and Come into his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it or you. We love you. God bless you. We hope you're enjoying this conference. And we hope to see you in person very soon again. God bless you. Thank you for joining us online. We hope and trust that you've been blessed by this service. Stay connected with us through our social media platforms, Facebook and WhatsApp. As we go, stay safe, stay blessed, stay connected.